Bibles, please, to not to the text that you have, but rather to Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 12. We have a congregational meeting today, and uh, I have to admit, when I was growing up, I, I never went to congregational meetings. I don't ever remember any congregational meetings at College Church in Wheaton, and I only remember one or two at uh, at. Madison, when we went to the Reformed Church there, and in Boulder at First Pres there. I don't remember any congregational meetings in South Hamilton. Anyhow, when I took my first pastorate, we had a congregational meeting, and because I was the moderator, all of a sudden they were on my radar screen. I knew that there were congregational meetings because I had to moderate them. And uh, that was the beginning of my initiation to what congregational meetings can be. And that's not a hopeful statement. (laughs) Congregational meetings can be pretty nasty things. Um, In fact, if I remember correctly, my first congregational meeting, one of the first questions that raised the ire uh, where somebody was really angry was my salary. And... um, that was the beginning of my recognition that uh, congregational meetings weren't just sweet. Well, I put up a post on my blog last night thanking God for this church and for the sweetness that has prevailed in our congregational meetings. And I, I almost didn't put it up because I thought to myself, well, you know, if, if I say congregational meetings have always been good here, I'm afraid what's going to happen is that, you know... Today, <laughs> we'll revert back to the norm for congregational meetings. Um, anyhow, the reason that I want to preach from Colossians chapter 3 today is that um, there are times of family councils where you sit down and you talk about the things that you need to talk about as a family, and that's what a congregational meeting is. And uh, I've chosen as our text this morning... Colossians chapter 3, but I want you, beginning with verse 12, but I want you to look first at verses 8 and 9, because uh, verses 12 and following are only the positive that balances the seesaw, first the negative that is given to us as Christians, as the church, first we're told in verses 8 and 9 of Colossians chapter 3, but now you also, and he's writing obviously to Christians in the church, you also Put them all aside, and then here's what we're to put aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. This past few months, I've been reading a lot about Jonathan Edwards in preparation for a pastor's college class on Jonathan Edwards' biography written by Ian Murray. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to. It's very readable. It's not that long. And uh, Jonathan Edwards is, uh, ought to be known for something other than the typical entry into the Norton Anthology of Literature where you're in your freshman English composition class and you have this thick book of representative works. And the only book, the thing they ever put in there is Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I'd like to ask those of you who have read some part of Sinners in, in the Hands of an Angry God to raise your hand. All right. Now, those of you, put your hands down. Those of you who have read only some part of Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, raise your hands. 
quite a few hands. Um, and that's because of the Norton Anthology. It's the most unique thing, according to literature people, that Edwards ever did. Well, Edwards was first a pastor, and uh, his life is fascinating. And one of the things that's hit me lately as I've been reading biographies of Edwards is the fact that Edwards um, was very, very concerned that people understand that churchgoers weren't saved, that Christians were saved. And we think we've invented hypocrisy in the church. We think we've invented civic religion where you're American, you're a Christian. You're a Christian, you're an American. But we haven't. This was what was true in colonial America, and it was, it was the center of a huge controversy in Jonathan Edwards' church. He ended up getting fired because of it. After you know, 20 years of faithful service, um, he got canned. And it was because he was very concerned that people didn't think that because they and their children came to church that they were saved. And so I want to say at the beginning of, of this sermon that um, it's very important that we understand that when the Apostle Paul says at the end of verse 9, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, this isn't just a statement that's thrown out there to anybody that goes to church. The Apostle Paul is making a very specific statement there that what he's telling people to put away, those things are things that they have already put away because they belong to Jesus Christ, because they've been born again. And, and so we need to not just pass over that and say, well, you know, everybody has already laid aside the old self with its evil practices. No, the Bible says if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This is the context. And I think that one of the most dangerous things for pastors and elders as they, uh, as they exercise authority over pastors I think one of the most dangerous things is that the elders try to keep the pastor from ever making the distinction between those in the church who belong to God and those who do not. Every sermon you hear, every time you're taught, you need to be thinking, do I belong to Jesus Christ? Now, I don't want you living you know, with chattering teeth and knocking knees. I belong. I don't belong. I belong. You know, like uh, you know, pulling off the... What's that little flower that, like when you're in love? Yeah, the daisy. He loves me, he loves me not, you know. It shouldn't be like that. It should be in faith. But it should be a faith that's constantly looking inside of our hearts to make sure we have not deceived ourselves. And I, my calling is to look inside your heart and to make sure you have not deceived yourself. Wouldn't it be a terrible thing if I went along with your, your, your own self-deceit and we stood before the judgment seat of God and, and God opened up your life and it was fully open in front of me. And I, I know that everything I'm seeing in heaven before the judgment seat that I saw here on earth. Now, obviously not everything, but I know. And yet I never warned you. This is not something you want. You don't. I keep thinking of doctors. You don't want to go to a doctor and, and say, I've got this terrible pressure, you know, in my abdomen. And the doctor says, it'll pass. It'll pass. And, and, and then, you know, one day you land in the hospital in the emergency room and it turns out it's a huge cancerous tumor. And the doctor says, well, I knew that's what it was, but I didn't think you had the emotional strength to handle it. I mean, it's just absurd. 
And so you shouldn't ask for pastors, and, and elders should not press pastors to be like that, to act as if they're the only one that doesn't see what everybody else in the church does see, that this person says they belong to Christ, but their entire life seems to be in bondage to their own selfishness. Do you, do you understand this? Does this make sense to you? So when the Apostle Paul says things like this, he's stopping and he's saying, remember who you are. And that should cause us to say, yes, I belong to Christ. Now, because you belong to Christ, though, does not mean, obviously, that you are not going to have anger and wrath and malice. Malice. You imagine Christians having malice. <laughs> you know the expression malice aforethought. Malice, slander. Oh, we couldn't have Christians that slander, right? Right? Nobody would ever lie intentionally to harm somebody else, right? I wouldn't do that. Never. I'd never do that. And abusive speech. Malice, slander, abusive speech. So these are the things that we're supposed to put off as Christians. And so that's also an encouragement. If you see in your heart malice and slander and abusive speech, this is not proof that you don't belong to Jesus. And you say, well, wait a second. You just said that we're supposed to test ourselves, and now you're saying that malice and slander and abusive speech don't indicate I'm not a Christian. Yes, this is the kind of weight, weighing, of judging, of testing, of discerning that the Bible's constantly calling us to do. You know, anybody that's had a child, you watch your children grow up and you say, he loves him, he loves him not. He loves him. And it's not frivolous like, you know, a child in, in the blush of first infatuation. But it's you weighing the character of your, of your child and, and looking to, to see the work of the Holy Spirit in your child's heart. And so, first the negative, then the positive. In verse 12, So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Okay? Put aside anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech. Don't lie to one another. Those who have been chosen by God put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly, Within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. Now, notice that our passage begins with the statement, what? Look at verse 12. So, as those who have been chosen of God. It is only those who are chosen of God who receive this exhortation to put on these things. It's those who God has elected to belong to Him. He has called them. He has chosen them. He has adopted them. And they are the ones that are able to put on this heart of compassion. Because it is only those who are born again by the Holy Spirit who are able to do this. Why? Because the only way you're going to put on a heart of compassion and love and forgiveness is if the Holy Spirit is at work within you, causing you to do that. So often, uh, when I read the commands of Scripture, and I think about myself, and I get depressed, 
seeing how far I am from Scripture, I think, well, I'm going to have to try harder. And this is the error of the Galatians. Having begun by the Spirit, are you going to continue in the flesh? Try harder, try harder. And it again hit me reading about Edwards this last week that the solution is that I ask the Holy Spirit to give me the right desires. This is what we need. The problem is we don't have the right desires in our heart. And so the Holy Spirit is to change our inclinations and our desires. And so this is why it's essential that you are someone, a man or a woman, who is chosen in Christ. Then you will have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, and that Holy Spirit will give you the ability to desire what is right and then to do what is right. Everybody likes to talk about the, you know, the freedom of the will. Why do we do? You know, Paul says in Romans, the things that I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to do, I don't do. So what's going on? Well, what's going on is that the Holy Spirit has to give us the right desires and then the will to do what is right. Have you noticed how sometimes you've been like an observer looking down at yourself from a thousand feet and all of a sudden you can't believe it, but you have a right inclination. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) But I mean, it's a trip when it happens. You know, you see, that was a right inclination. And then it really boggles your mind when you follow through on it. Now, I'm being, I didn't intend to be humorous, but apparently, I don't know, I won't think about it too much. Um, But I can remember one very specific time that this happened, and that is when, um, when my father died up at Mayo Clinic. And uh, God had given me a dream telling me he was going to die. So I knew he was going to die. But I was with my mother, and, you know, you're to be hopeful. So he goes under the knife, and I knew that's how he was going to die. He was not going to recover from a surgery. I knew that a year beforehand. Uh, And this is one of the reasons I'm not a cessationist, but I won't go into that. Although I would never put this on the level of Scripture, it was very clear to me what was going to happen. So I'm in this room, and they announce that, you know, Joe Bailey's family, please come to the desk. You go to the desk. They tell you uh, his surgery is completed. He's off the bypass machine. Uh, He's in the recovery room, and you'll be able to go in and see him in a little while. Would you please go to room such and such, you know? And it's surreal, and I I, I know it's not true, but I'll go ahead and do what they tell me to do, right? And so I take my mother, because Mary Lee and Michael had gone away for food or something. And uh, we go into this room, and all of a sudden they come in and say, something's gone horribly wrong. And I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, I knew it was going to go horribly wrong. I, I had a dream. You know, and I'm sitting there with my mother and she's just, you know, her life is about to cave in. And uh, they tell us that he went into severe arrhythmia and that uh, they're working on him. And we're sitting here. There's a little wall here and they're working on him right here. Right. And uh, the surgeons and everybody's in there. It's it's bad. And they keep reporting, and I don't know how long it was. It could have been five hours. It could have been five seconds. I have no idea how long it was, but pretty soon they come in and tell us he died. Now, remember how I told you that it's a delight to me when I see that a desire and an inclination, a will in me is right, and then to see that I act on it? Well, right away this chaplain came in. 
And if you, if you don't know me, I, I, have a, I have a very strong dislike for chaplains. All right? And part of it comes from this. The chaplain comes in and begins to tell us how we have uh, every right to be angry at God. Now, mind you, nobody's speaking about anger at God. In fact, nobody was talking to the chaplain. We were just crying. <laughs> and he tells us that we have every right to be angry at God. And all I could think was that I wanted to stand up and punch him in the face so that he'd leave. Because <laughs> it was such a violation of that moment. Because what is that moment? Well, that is a moment of faith. That is a moment where you look down from a thousand feet and you either see faith in God or you see unbelief. Do you understand me? And what I loved was I was way up there looking down, right? And I saw in myself complete submission and love for God at that moment. And that was probably the most encouraging moment of my life. Not because I did anything. I was incapable of doing anything except crying at that point and for another 24 hours. But what was so moving to me was that God at that moment put in my heart, Abba, Father. Do you understand this? And so when that's at the center of your heart, then you know you who are chosen by God. And then you receive the exhortation, but you receive it from the Father, knowing that that Father will Himself do the work that, requ- that is required for you to be, and it tells us, compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, and patient, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Now, come on, be honest. This is impossible for us to do as we are. You know, I, and, and I know when I preach a text like this that... Uh, If I think of myself and my failings, certainly you think of me and my failings. So let's just get it out on the table, okay? I am not, I am actually compassionate. Hold on, don't judge me. But I'm, I'm somewhat kind, I'm not humble. Gentleness, okay? And patience? (laughs) I mean, no, this is not me. Okay? Uh, Bearing with one another, not really. Forgiving each other, somewhat forgiving. I am a complainer. Now, what about you? I thought of one of you in particular as I was preparing to preach, and I thought, you know, that woman does look quite godly. But I happen to know that woman. And she really isn't very good on any of these things either. And this, is, and, and this is what causes me to say, don't look at the person next to you. Look at yourself. Apply this to yourself. You can have a tight lip, never speaking, you know, in the safety of people not knowing you. And you can be an unbelievably censorious and nasty person. Do you understand what I'm saying? In the privacy of your bedroom with your husband, he knows who you are. And you might hide it from everybody but your own home, but I doubt there's anybody in here that shouldn't feel completely under the conviction of the Holy Spirit as they read this list, right? You know, all of us, no matter how pretty we are, are really pretty ugly. Everybody but you, David. You knew that was coming. (laughs) Okay.
So we put ourselves under God. And we see him telling us not to be this list, and we see him telling us to be this list. And when you go through what compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience are, uh, what you see is that it is the character of God and of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, if I were to say Jesus himself was compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, and patient, everybody here would agree with me, right? Nobody's disagreeing, right? Isn't that who Jesus is? Let me ask you this question, though. Do you believe that that's who the Pharisees thought Jesus was? Yesterday, uh, Scott was going to get up and give an announcement. And his announcement was going to be to say that, uh, I don't know what he was going to say, actually. Um, What were you going to say? (laughs) Now that's twisted. (laughs) What did I want you to say? (laughs) I wanted you to tell everybody how how good my son played basketball. He, he did a good job, didn't he? Yeah, okay. You want to say that or should I just say it? Why don't you come up and say that? <laughs> don't worry, it has a point. That's actually not what I want you to say. I know. Yeah. You just put that in front of your mouth. Okay. Um. Right here. Right there. Okay. Yes. Sorry. Um, I coach a basketball team, and uh, about half of those kids on that team are in this church. Um, but I, I made a promise to these parents when we started that uh, we would focus on character first. And, um, you know, one of the questions that my wife repeats to me constantly, thank you, Mary Lee, is uh, who teaches men to be men? And we try to use that as a forum to teach the, men, the young men in this church how to be men. Because when you get in bas- and our point, and each year I've kind of had a theme in what I've been trying to teach. The theme this year has been that in basketball we bump into each other. There's incidental contact. Okay? Sometimes pretty intense incidental contact. If my son Justin's here today, look at his face, okay? His nose was bleeding from the out- inside. His nose was bleeding from the outside. He's got a contusion on this, this cheek. He's got one on this cheek. I mean, his face was red all over, and his nose was red with blood. I, thought he, I told him he looked like a clown during the game yesterday. But, um, you know, and, and I mean, the, the announcement is that these guys won the state championship yesterday for homeschool teams. Um, which is a, is a tremendous achievement if you knew how we were beaten so soundly over the last couple of years. Um, and, you know, people think that sports is an outstanding way to build character just by showing up, just by the team atmosphere and the discipline. And, and you know what? But you can look at the NBA and you can tell there's no character there. And that's because it's not godly discipline. Godly discipline is not something that we do. It's something that God does in us. As we exercise, as we bump into each other. And, um, and it's, it's, it's what happens in churches. 
That's why church meetings are contentious, because we bump into each other. And sometimes it's incidental conduct. And, and then the ungodly side kicks in, where the anger and wrath, malice, all of those things kick up. Well, if we haven't prepared ourselves to have a, you know, and don't have a heart for the Lord, those things will tear us apart. And the same thing is true. And that's, that's been the beauty of what I've seen on, amongst a, a group of boys. Now, I'll tell you, my wife was making this point to me this week, is that in this church... If you go to the high school youth group, there's about 20 boys in that group. You talk about a ministry. You talk about why a church needs a facility like this. We have 20 boys that we need to train. You know, I mean, I've been coaching basketball, and you would not believe what I've had to do to try to find a place just to have a practice. You know, the churches in this, in this town will not let you lose, use their gym without charging you somewhere between 20 and $50 an hour. And I can explain to them that this is a ministry, that this is, you know, we're training young men. And, and you know what? They don't care. They just don't care. Uh, the, the, best, the best place that we have to practice, in my mind, is in Jeff Hanna's barn. You know, and it's a concrete room that's, that's not really a full-size court. But we go, we're going to practice there tomorrow night. You know, I love practicing there just because here's a man who has a heart for the Lord and cares enough about some kids to let him come and, and, and practice. In, in his in his barn, and uh, and that's what that's the kind of heart that our church has to have for the the, the, the lost in our community. You know, I think that, that there's a tremendous outreach there. I'll get off that that side of it, but the whole point was character, and um, and I was I, you know I've worked so hard. Um, on, it starts with me. I mean. Um, my biggest temptation is is anger. Um, I mean, I can't even explain to you the, the conflicts I've had in my family, and it's all because of the sin nature that God has that that God that, that I have in me about about ang- about anger, and and I've I've suffered throughout my life trying trying to to find that line between the temptation and the sin. And what I've found is that, that men get angry for a reason. And that is that we're made in the image of God. If you look at the, the earlier in the, cha- in the chapter we're reading here in Colossians 3, it talks about, and, and what we read in Isaiah, uh, it talks about the anger of God. Well, God doesn't sin, He gets angry. You know, you tell me Jesus drove the... the, the the money changers out of the temple with a whip and he wasn't angry. He was angry. But in his anger, he did not sin. And it's what's inside of us and the way God changes us. And we can, you know what, we can practice all we want. We can have, you know, and this is the, this is the danger that we have of, 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 of trying to condition ourselves so that we look good and we act good. But unless God makes a change in our hearts, we cannot, we cannot, we will cross that border between the temptation and the sin. And that's where, where you know, I'm, I'm really, you know, I can't be more delighted, you know, as we, I was walking out of that gym yesterday with my son, and we were kind of the last ones to leave, and they had lights turned out in the gym, and we were walking down the hallway, and I just put my arm around him and said, you know, I never expected for this to happen to us. For one thing, I never expected to coach that much, and, um, 
and I never really have pushed my kids in basketball, although there are those who think otherwise. <laughs> liar, liar, pants on fire. No, the telephone liar. I really just wanted them to have an opportunity. Anyway, in spite of what it sounds like, um, uh, that team has so much to work on in, um, in, in its spiritual stuff. It didn't have anything to do with basketball. I mean, um, I had three, three kids off my team play on Bloomington South's uh, uh, AU team last spring. And, you know, we stepped on the court, and we were in better condition than those players from the public schools. And, uh, um, um, I mean, I think we... we you know, it was incredible to see how they were able to perform that environment. But, um, but the stuff we got to work on is all in the heart. That's what, that's where it is. Thanks. I'm sorry, it takes so long. No. So there are two options for us as Christians. One option is for us to choose to live our life confessing Christ never known and never knowing anybody else, never being in a church where we will ever smash against anyone, never taking risks, never being intimate, never going to small group, and anytime we speak up, always having principles that are so strong that we can overpower everyone else. All right. The other way is that we can live in such a way that other people can harm us by being the opposite. Other people can harm us by what? By not being compassionate, not being kind, not being humble, not being gentle, not being patient, not bearing with us, and not forgiving us. And uh, we can live in such a way that nobody can ever notice that we are uh, not compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, and patient, and bearing with one another and forgiving each other. It's very easy to hide. It's very easy to live a private life. It's very easy to not show up at practice. But as a church, we are committed to having organic, real life. Real life. And that means real sinners, real disappointments, and taking real shots to the head. (laughs) And, you know, you guys do give them to me all the time. And there's nothing wrong with that. It builds my character. If I hadn't gone through my previous church, I would be even worse than I am. Hmm. (laughs) And so I encourage us as a church, take risks, live with each other, go to your small group, even if you don't want to. Or as uh, as Lauren exhorted us this morning, go to your small group, particularly when you don't want to. Because what's going to happen is you will be able to test whether you're chosen of God, and then you will see God changing you, causing your inclinations to be right, giving you a heart of compassion, making you able to, to look, overlook people's wrongs to you. Um, I'm out of time, and it's a critical morning for us to be done on time. Um, but I want to end with another story about this, this basketball team. There's a man named, and I'm going to use his name. It's probably wrong for some reason, but I'm going to use it. There's a man named John Laskowski who used to play for Indiana University. I don't know his history. 
Um, my understanding from yesterday is that he was the number six man. Is that true, Jay? And uh, John, when Mary Lee and Diane Smith were starting Lighthouse Christian Academy in this community, John came along beside them. Uh, they didn't know him, but he came along beside them and took up their cause and was extremely helpful. All I knew about him was that he was tall, that he was a, a gentleman, and that he was willing to help and that he didn't carry around an aura of ego. You know what I'm saying? seems like in Bloomington, if you're an old basketball star, you'd have an aura of an ego, you know? I mean, right? He didn't, and it impressed me. It impressed me the way he ran the auction to raise money. He was humble, and he was meek. So anyhow, John, we've lost touch with him. We don't know anything that's happening to him, but all of a sudden, apparently Scott knows him, and Scott and John talked, and John's son, uh, Scotty, I want to say, yeah, Scotty uh, shows up to play on the team, right? And I had not been at the practice that he finally showed up at, but Taylor told me that uh, Scotty showed up, and he said uh, the one thing he said about him is he said he's the meekest guy on our team. And I thought that was so interesting. And I thought about what? What did I think of immediately? What does the Bible say about Moses? Do you remember? The Bible says Moses was the meekest man on the earth. What a beautiful thing to have said about your son. You know, and you look at this guy who, you know, could have all the ego he wanted in Bloomington, right? But my understanding is that he was willing to be the sixth man. And when he came off the bench, what I was told yesterday is there was an immediate spark when he came off the bench. Is it surprising that this guy has a son who is the meekest man on the team? And so you, you, you listen to Scott talking about the team, and uh, I believe that this basketball team is not another aspect of the idolatry of basketball in this community, but is in fact a place where we can have Christians training one another in the character that's here in our scripture text. Congregational meetings are another place. If you don't show up, it may well be because you don't want your bad character to show up. <laughs> you know, But as a church, we need to live together in such a way that we're actually challenged to live like this. You understand? Whether it's putting our sons under Scott's leadership on that team. And by the way, the reason Taylor plays on that team has nothing to do with us wanting to see Taylor score points. You have to trust me on this. It has to do with Mary Lee and me and Taylor himself, he said it, wanting to be trained in his character and in his play by Scott Clampett. <laughs> That's the reason he plays. And so I trust that as you look in your heart, you will desire in this church to be trained in the character. It's not easy, and you will make a fool of yourself. But in this church, that's not bad. It's good. It's good when I have occasion to do... All right, I lied. One last story. Come on, David. Please, please, David. All right. Um, this last week, a week and a half ago, uh, I got angry at a Christian business and the way they were trying to make money and threatening lawsuits. And so I wrote an email to them and copied it to a number of leaders. 
And about a week and a half later, I got emails back saying, you weren't gentle. And not just one person, but three or four people contacted me, including Ken Sandy, who's the head of Christian Peacemakers. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, So guess what I had to do? I had to send out an email apologizing to these people who were threatening lawsuits. And it was a good thing to do. Now, are you willing to be in a church where you get that kind of opportunity to say you're sorry and to admit you're wrong? Huh? All right, I'll stop. Let's pray.